Well, last week in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that we can only have one treasure, one singly focused eye, one master. Right? It was a text which called us to choose who we are serving, what we are serving, and especially where our treasure is, heaven or earth. And the text excluded any possibility of mixture between heaven and earth as idolatry. And it is precisely failure here, right? Failure to place one's treasure, to store it up where it's beyond being assailed or lost or diminished. It's failure here which produces anxiety. Anxiety is almost always downstream from some form of idolatry. And Jesus connects our text here this morning, right, with that prior piece of teaching on the treasure, which we heard last week. He connects it with the word, therefore, which opens our passage. He connects anxiety with earthly treasure. And so we'll look at the text under five headings. It's the gospel lesson we just read. They're there in the back of your bulletin. There's a general principle, food, clothes, a summary, and the kingdom. So this is Matthew 6, right? Beginning of verse 25. So first, note the general principle here. Therefore, Jesus starts off, therefore, since you must choose and serve only one master, and it must not be mammon. Since your treasure can only be in one place and it must be in heaven. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Right? This makes it much clearer, brings some resolution to the flow of Jesus' thought, right? Therefore, don't worry or be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. And like so many things in the Sermon on the Mount, this strikes us as unrealistic. (laughs) It's impractical. I mean, it feels like a kind of um, starry-eyed idealism, like almost an escapism has triumphed over good old-fashioned, you know, hard-boiled realism about the world. Don't worry. Don't worry about any of this stuff. And as we've observed, we are very quick to tame these texts and to remove their rough edges. I mean, does Jesus really expect us not to worry at all about our lives and our futures? This is not, it's a well-known passage, right? But it really should be like all of these texts in the Sermon on the Mount, or most of them anyway, shocking. Because this is not, I suspect, the level-headed common sense advice your parents gave you. You know, work hard in school, make sure you get good grades, you know, get a good job with benefits, plan for retirement, save for a rainy day, get yourself some good insurance. All prudent advice to be sure, though not, not without its spiritual pitfalls. Who goes to their father or mother concerned about their future, concerned about which college to choose, what their major should be, and has the parents say, eh, take a look at the flowers. 
don't, don't worry about it. The, the problem is that for most of us, planning and preparation and hard work are almost always accompanied by fretting, by anxiety. I mean, for many, laboring for a secure future is virtually synonymous with worrying. I mean, after all, a lot of the advice that parents regularly dispense actually seems designed to abolish serenity. Right? To create maybe a certain unease or a certain anxiety as maybe a stimulus to work. That may be a little bit more the American way. Because, you know, we don't want to discourage, or, you know, encourage apathy or indifference or laziness or irresponsibility. So we dole out all that advice I just listed off. And when this type of advice is successful, it often creates a focused and a driven person. But it frequently creates people who are riddled with anxieties with a fear of failure, with some sense of foreboding about the future. And by the way, it can often be the same person who's driven and fearful, right? Successful people will often tell you that they're driven by a kind of inner paranoia. I mean, highly what the world would consider successful people. I remember in the 90s when I was at IBM that the CEO of Intel was a guy named Andy Grove. And Andy Grove published a book at the time entitled, Only the Paranoid Survive. That's the way CEOs in the tech world think. The CEO of IBM at the time used to regularly use metaphors of warfare about other companies. Used to say things like, those people who want your market share are taking food out of the mouths of your children. Like he was George Patton. So, I would bet that not one in 10,000 Christian parents who guide their sons and daughters about education and work have ever sat down and read them this text as a piece of life advice. Unless your parents were hippies then maybe you have a shot at it. So, for the record, let me just say it, because you have to say these things in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The text does not preclude planning or hard work or a reasonable regard for one's future. But in saying this, we can let ourselves off the hook too easily. Notice this. The text absolutely demands... It's in the imperative mood. The text is a command. It demands the cutting out, the excision of not some, but all worry from our lives. That's the bar the text sets. In the midst of planning and saving and working, there's to be absolutely no worrying. Zero. The same amount of worry as you have treasure on earth, namely none. As Paul puts it in Philippians 6, we heard this in the New Testament lesson, be anxious for nothing. Not not be anxious for a few big things, but just be anxious for nothing. Life is more than food. The body's more than clothes, Jesus says. 
And the God who gave life, the more valuable thing, will give the lesser stuff. Now, before we proceed, I, I, I don't want to take for granted what worry is, because we, we think we might know what it is. It's a slippery thing to define, but I want to say a few words about it. There are certain apprehensions in life, natural fears, they're all, you know, it's pro- and they're largely probably unavoidable, like a job interview or a big test or a major surgery or something. But these are occasional things. Right? We have to trust the Lord, pray for courage, face them. I don't think Jesus is talking about an occasional thing like this. For him here, worry is more pervasive. It's more basic. Right? It is a state of being which takes our capacity to hope and perverts it. Right? Worry is the dark side of hope. Right? Human beings have this capacity to project themselves into the future and to imagine a future. And to imagine themselves and their lives and, the, and a whole world, right? And that's, that capacity is the capacity to hope given to us by God. But worry takes that capacity and mangles it. And this is why it's such a poisonous thing. It is a sickness of the soul. It is not a sign of legitimate concern. Right? Worriers always think that their fretting is a sign of how much they care. You know, I'm just texting to check on them. Yeah, but you just, you just checked on them 45 seconds ago. Well, you know, I care a lot. We, we think worrying a lot means we care. So we hover, and we check, and we double check, and we triple check. But it's not. Jesus sees it as a kind of disease. Like we're worrying because we have two masters and two treasures and not one. And so the worried self is a fragmented self, a divided self. Right? When the worried person is craving a security that we cannot have and a control that we have not been given, they worry, Jesus says, about their life, their future daily bread. This, of course, can cause you to view other people with great suspicion, right? That, what else does only the paranoid survive mean in that book title, right? Or these people want to come and take food out of your children's mouth mean, except there can be no solidarity or community in this view of the world. And so this kind of worry often creates an unfocused or a jittery busyness. It is, it is designed to shatter your shalom, the peace of God, which has been given us in Christ to guard our hearts and minds. It's an action of the Spirit because we're in the midst of a frail and fragile existence and time, and we need our peace guarded. But when worry enters, right, tranquility and repose and steadiness flee. So worry is uprooting our well-being. So the general principle here is clear. And again, I want you to note, it's not counsel, it's not advice. Worry is forbidden. So the second point is food. Verse 26 contains a little lesson from nature. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow and they don't reap. They don't store away or gather in barns. 
Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's another thing worry does wrong. It, it does not read God's generosity off the creation properly. It learns nothing from what's right in front of its eyes. Right? And thus Jesus' illustration. Look at, he says, notice he says, look at, see, see the birds. See the birds. Luther has this marvelous comment here where he says, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding thing to us that in the gospel, a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. And he continues and he says, whenever you listen to a nightingale, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. And every day he feeds and he nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand. That's Luther. Closer to our day, closer to our day, some of you know the philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch. She has a very well-known lecture in which she's describing a time of anxiety in her life, anxiety and some self-pity. And she says this. She says, we are anxiety-ridden animals. Our minds are continually active, fabricating an anxious, usually self-preoccupied. Right? Anxiety goes with self-preoccupation most of the time. But it's an anxious, usually self-preoccupied, often falsifying veil. In other words, anxiety falsifies your view of the world. It's distorting it. It's like putting on glasses that distort your vision. So we're doing this. We're we're anxious, self-preoccupied. We create this falsifying veil, conceals the world from us, she says. But, she continues, I am looking out my window. In an anxious and resentful state of mind, brooding on some damage done to my prestige, then suddenly I observe a hovering kestrel which for those of you who are not nature lovers like myself, is a bird. I learned that from Google. (laughs) Anyway, she's looking out her window, and suddenly she observes a hovering kestrel. And she says, in a moment, everything is altered. The brooding self with its hurt vanity has disappeared. And when I return to thinking of that other matter, it seems less important. Right? That's Iris Murdoch being instructed by, by hearing good news from the birds of the air. Now, I mean, of course the point is not that you shouldn't work. God doesn't just drop food into the beaks of birds. But like the birds, you shouldn't worry. Right? That's Jesus' point. The birds have no retirement accounts. They have no backup plan. And not unrelated, right? They have no high cholesterol. They have very good numbers. Yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. And the text says, you are are of more value than them. They're not worrying. What should you be worried about? Besides, Jesus says in verse 27, anxiety is utterly fruitless and unproductive. Can anyone add, he says, a single hour to their life by worrying? 
I've said it before, but if we could do this, some of us would live to be four or five hundred. We could add a lot of hours to our lives. But we cannot. And in fact, worry will usually subtract time from your life. It eats away at your own well-being. So it is the divine, sovereign goodness of God which numbers your days, their beginning and their end, not impotent human anxiety. So learn from the birds. Look and see. Jesus says, look and see. They converse in this little poem entitled, Overheard in an Orchard. It goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. That's food. The third point is clothes. Clothes. Verse 28. Why do you worry about clothes? And this to a people who barely had more clothes than the clothes on their back. A people, by the way, who have already been told, if someone wants to take your coat, give them your cloak as well. So how much more relevant is this to to us in the the fashion-conscious, full-closeted West? These people were worried about their clothes? Consider, Jesus says, again, note note the command to look, to look and be wise. Consider, he says, see how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil and they don't spin. They work even less than the birds. But the point is simply that God clothes them. And he does so with even more splendor than Solomon in all of his glory. Take the great palaces of the earth. One flower is more glorious than that. All the grass of the field doesn't even endure as long as our little ephemeral lives. It's here today and tomorrow Jesus says it's thrown into the fire. Which is a reference to the fact that they use grasses and and soils in the ovens of the ancient world to cook with. He's not talking about hell. He's just saying, we, you know, the, the grass that's out there today is going to be used to cook tomorrow. The flowers which are eaten by the cows, Luther says, are exalted to be our teachers. They never go out of style. Right? You know, this year's fashions are next year's follies, but the flowers keep coming back, always in fashion. And as it was with the birds, so it is here. Jesus says, if the thing of lesser value, the flower, is arrayed in splendor, notice this, will he not much more clothe you? He's going to clothe you in splendor, in glory. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And here we learn something new, something crucial. To worry about clothing or provision for our bodies is to be of little faith. So anxiety, right, it corrodes and it distorts hope because it is faithless. It it is a form of unbelief, anxiety. It refuses to believe that God has become your heavenly father in Jesus Christ. It does not believe rightly in God's providential rule of the world. 
It does not believe that underneath are the everlasting arms. Right? That you and your future are held in the nail-pierced hands of the risen and transfigured Christ. Worry does not believe that. The root of anxiety here is unbelief. It's a form of practical atheism. It thinks that fragile economic realities are more basic to existence than the risen Christ. And this brings us to the fourth point, the summary. Verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious. He says this three times in the passage. And this anxiety or worry is reflected in constant speaking, notice that, about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear. The pagans run after all these things, he says. They run, they seek, they pursue them with vigor. In fact, this is about all that pagans like to talk about. They can do it for days on end. And if human beings are nothing but a biophysical bundle of bodily needs, then sure, I guess we should talk about this all the time. But it betrays a false view of the human person. That's another thing anxiety does. It betrays a false view of the human person, which always entails a false view of God. God, the heavenly Father, Jesus says, who knows you need all these things. So, So think about it this way. If we have, and we do, such a father in Jesus Christ, then anxiety is not only wrong, it is in the end an illusion. It's a kind of weird magic trick of the fallen principalities and powers. It's a fantasy world, the world of anxiety. Without our heavenly father, without his kingdom, without our being rooted and hidden in Christ, without our treasure secure in heaven. It's a fantasy world where we're left stranded somehow, thrown back on our own resources, maybe with a little help from God, to fill in the gap between now and the future we're trying to get to. This world does not exist. But we create it. And then we live in it, fearfully. In verse 34, Jesus reiterates the command, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word for trouble there is evil. So it's important to get this, right? Jesus knows there are plenty of things which, humanly speaking, can provoke worry. Every day has its quota full of the stuff. And yet, he says... He says it's nonsensical. It's just irrational to worry. Tomorrow or the day after that are not even promised to us. And if you worry and its troubles do not materialize, well, you've worried in vain. But if you worry about it and the troubles do materialize, well, then you end up worrying twice. So worry doubles your trouble. The writer George MacDonald said, no, no man ever sank under the burden of the day. No man ever sank under the burden of the day. It is when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today 
that the weight is more than a man can bear. It's when you add up all the future days and the future contingencies and the future possibilities that it's too much. Because we love to borrow trouble from the future. When in fact, what we are actually promised, and we'll sing this later, Lord willing, we are promised grace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. So finally, the kingdom. The Gentiles seek, Jesus says, they run after all these things, but you are to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. So here he gets to, if you will, the positive prescription. We are not, indeed we cannot simply just refrain from worrying. We must instead substitute another pursuit. The pursuit of the kingdom. It's as if Jesus says to us, we're either going to be possessed by our anxieties or we're going to be possessed by the kingdom of God. And so we're seeking this kingdom which ironically, has already come in Christ and shall come in its fullness and continues to come through the Spirit. So it's important to see this, right? As always, we pursue that which we already have as gift. Right? The the kingdom that you're called to pursue is not something out there that you have to attain to. It's already been given to you. The kingdom, then, is the supreme reality. We saw this when we went over the Lord's Prayer. The kingdom is the new creation. It is the realm of the spirit. D.A. Carson says the kingdom of God here is that aspect of God's sovereignty under which there is spiritual life. So seeking the kingdom of God, that is reading the world properly as our Father's world. This is my Father's world. And seeking the kingdom, Jesus says, means seeking the righteousness of God. Again, this is not a statement about legal righteousness or being justified. It's a call to seek the just reign of God our Father. In this context, it's a call to live out the Beatitudes, right? To hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, what's Jesus' prescription? Turn to the kingdom. Essentially, go back to the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Seek the hallowing of God's name, the coming of his rule, and obedience to his will. All three of these things on earth, even as they are in heaven. Refocus your divided self. Seeking the kingdom, then, Jesus says, displaces anxiety. Because the promise is, he says, notice, that all of these things, food and drink and clothing, all these things will be added to you. They'll be given to you as well. Seeking the one, the kingdom, annihilates the other, anxiety. And we can kind of gauge ourselves here. So Jesus has sort of given us a measure. If we're constantly riddled with anxiety, we're not seeking the kingdom enough. The more we seek the kingdom, the less anxiety. So, in the Sermon on the Mount to this point, we've seen that there are two kinds of piety. There's the kind that seeks the applause of men, and there's the kind that seeks the approval of our Father in secret. There are two kinds of treasure, treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. Two kinds of eyes, generous eyes or stingy eyes. Two and only two possible masters, God or mammon. 
And so here, there are only two types of pursuit. The pagan pursuit of all this other stuff, food, clothing, provisions, the future. Or the pursuit of the kingdom of God and its justice. So, here's the good news in this text. Our lives are not suspended over some abyss. You are enveloped by this God and this Christ in this peaceable, indestructible kingdom. You are not dangling somewhere. Your life is not poised over the darkness. It is not suspended in doubt. You belong to the one who rules. And the one who rules, rules out anxiety as a phantom sickness. You know how people lose a limb and then they think they feel it? That's what anxiety is. It's a phantom sickness. It's a complete deception about the nature of reality in which you are rooted and grounded in the risen and transfigured Christ who will guard and keep you till that day. You belong to the one who rules, and the one who rules, rules out anxiety as a phantom sickness. Cast your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. And that is where, for many of us, seeking his kingdom and his righteousness must begin. Amen.